You are listening to a podcast from Backstage on the Fringe.com. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Backstage on the Fringe podcast. The Fringe is a tough environment to succeed in regardless of your background. Performers find it hard to get a toehold with audiences, the media and sometimes even the Fringe itself. In this episode, I spoke to Shan Davis and Jamie Hutchinson from Best in Class, a comedy showcase for working class talent. Yeah, I'm Jamie Hutchinson. Shan Davis, and the show is Best in Class. Guys, thanks so much for talking to Backstage on the Fringe. It's a wet Sunday morning, afternoon now. Uh, I came along to see the show, it starts at noon. And I was pleasantly surprised by the numbers that were there. I thought the show was fabulous and there's going to be a separate review on the blog. Uh, Tell me how Edinburgh's going for you so far. Uh, It's going really well until it started raining this morning. Uh, (laughs) um, It's it's going great. We're getting good numbers down and uh, the shows have been brilliant every day. And um, the acts that we've had on have been fantastic as well. So can't complain, really. Jimmy, is this your first Edinburgh? Yeah, first time here. So I'm here for a week. Um, trying to like bed in gently and stuff and I'm, I'm a bit like a kid at Christmas at the moment seeing all these great shows and performing as well um, yeah it's it's like really enthusiasm and giving me some, so much enthusiasm should I say uh, to get more shows under me about while I'm here and stuff I'm really enjoying it Tell me about what the audience can expect from Best in Class give us the elevator pitch So Best in Class is a working class showcase. So we have three different working class comedians every single day. Um, And it is basically about getting working class performers to the fringe because it costs an awful lot of money to be here. Um, And yeah, we're just there doing our thing and showing that, you know, just because we're working class doesn't mean that we're not um, nuanced and funny and different and um, exciting performers. So um, yeah, it's a great show. One of the great myths about Edinburgh is because it's an uncurated festival, anybody can come. Well, that's not strictly true from a financial perspective. Tell us about your experiences of that. Yeah, so, I mean, anyone can apply to do a show at the Fringe, uh, but getting here is is a very different story. So it does cost a lot of money to be here, even, like, on the free Fringe, you know. um, You still have to... Like, my my accommodation for the month is £1,100. You know, when you're working class, that is that is two months salary for some people that that's a lot of money um so it might be you know open for people to apply to come but to actually be here is a different story um you know i was invited to um perform well to audition at a showcase at the fringe and i was told that um i would have to put up 1800 pounds to secure my place now the the sort of it's, it's given me the caveat that you can earn that money back in ticket sales and all that money goes to securing the room and the marketing and things like that which which is absolutely fine but £1,800 is, is a lot of money to just pull out your back pocket when, when you don't live in a world like that, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's just, it, it's impossible for a lot of working class people. Even things like getting a time off work to come, come and do a full run at the Fringe. Like, I'm, I'm really lucky in that my um, daytime job really support what I do, so they give me the time off to come. So, um, you know, when you're working class, it is really, really difficult to, to access it. What has Best in Class offered you that you wouldn't have been able to achieve, Jamie, if Best in Class hadn't been there? Well, yeah, it's an excuse to come up to the Fringe. And like Sean mentioned with accommodation, I'm lucky I'm staying with a friend for free on on, on the floor. So that's finance-wise, finance, finance It's it would have been impossible otherwise. And plus, it's uh, I'm performing 20-minute sets every day. The set's different to what it was when I start at the start of the week so I'm just getting better as a comedian just by 
the pure volume of stage time that I'm getting while I'm here. So there's a there's a world of difference between the fringe and comedy, uh, and comedy in the wider sense. And the fringe is a bubble. People exist here for a month, and it's all lovely, and it's you know prosecco and shows in the afternoon and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there's a great working class tradition right throughout comedy. And when you think of the big names of comedy, you don't necessarily automatically think about people who could be described as posh. Why do you think working class comedians are excluded from the fringe in this way? Um, I think, to me, there's sort of three things when you're working class that, that mean it's difficult. One is money, one is time, and one is like social connections, if you like. So um, it's really difficult, I think, when, you, when you've grown up in a working class environment to have the necessary networking skills, um, to have the self-promotion skills. You know, like I went to a school where we were sort of taught to just join the workforce, to, to continue to be do as, do as we were told and to um, not necessarily have self-belief and not necessarily be able to promote yourself. Whereas in comedy, it's different. You know, you've got to be able to stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm doing. You've got to be able to talk to all sorts of different people uh, and pitch what you're doing in a really succinct way and I think when you're working class that can be a struggle you know just being able to to shout about yourself and and do those kind of things doesn't come naturally to us um, so I think the fringe is is a difficult environment um, and it, it's a learning curve for us I think that's one thing that, that we're all learning like that, that you've got to be able to do that you know there was an awful lot of what you guys did today that involved engaging with the audience and you know, the old adage, don't sit in the front row at a comedy show. But, you know, the guys that do, you look after them. There was nothing today that made me uncomfortable. Um, does it ever go wrong? Uh, it's gone wrong before. I used to, I used to, I'm from Manchester, tell from the accent. I used to do a bit about, um, I'll teach how to walk like a Mancunian. And because I, I used to pick someone from the audience, so I'll teach you how to walk like a Mancunian step by step. And when you're on stage, you, the lights hit, you can't really see the audience. I said, I'll, I'll pick, I'll make you walk like a Mancunian, and they was in a wheelchair, which ah okay. There was really there was there was really nice about it, and obviously I was mortified. I wasn't taking the mic. I genuinely just couldn't see where they were sat, and because they had a table around them, um, and they they took it in really good humour. But uh, for a brief second, I thought I was going to get blacklisted or end up on a register somewhere or something. Um, you you both have a, a very confident stage presence um, and the sets that I've seen you do, although they're fairly short, both seemed really well crafted. Has that taken you a long time to produce? Um, yeah, I mean, like I, I've been doing comedy um, only for quite a short time in, in the grand scheme of things. I started just under two years ago. It'll be two years next month. But um, a lot of the stuff that I talk about, um, like I've, I've had that material under my belt for probably about a year. So I've, I've been honing it and working on it and editing it. And I know it's it's a good set and a lot of it is about class and things like that anyway so it fits quite naturally with the with the theme of the show um but yeah it does it takes time and i think that's um something that people in the comedy industry understand but other audiences might not get that you don't just stand up and tell a joke it's not different every time you work at it and you edit it and you change things and you you keep going and keep going and keep going until you get that sweet spot of your material and i think um i've got that now with this material but in September, I need to write some new stuff. So, uh, <laughs> see me in a couple of years. <laughs> I, um, I, I went through different personas. When I first started out, I went on as deadpan. And then I went on as a complete caricature of like Liam Gallagher. 
and I think it was a defence mechanism because if if, it, if a gig didn't go well, which when you're starting out, you know, you're still learning your craft, etc. Um, I found it was uh, like a comfort blanket. It's oh, the audience they just don't like my persona. Whereas now I'm myself on stage. If they don't like the set, they don't like me. But I'm more comfortable with that now. But it took me three years and about four different personas to get where I am now. And it was it was just myself all along. What I'm more comfortable with on stage rather than forcing something that isn't authentic. I suppose. What I noticed about your set in particular, um, you seemed very comfortable with pauses you were able to use rhythm and repetition really well is that a deliberate strategy or have you just found that pattern i kind of just found it but i love pauses i love playing with the silence and sometimes it goes wrong some people like jump in and guess the punchline and stuff so i have like a little arsenal of stuff that i can say because I, I expect where they're going to shout out stuff um so i have little prepared things but i love the um performance side of it and taking me time. I watched, I, it came from, I, I remember distinctly watching uh, Jim Owen as a, as a kid on Live at the Apollo and he, he did something with the stage where he's just silent and he's just, I'm finding the funny part of the stage and it's just brilliant. I just love the pauses. I, I think what one of my big bugbear in, in watching comedy as a fan, um, obviously better people than me or more experienced people than me is, they drop a joke and then go, um, so, you know, they don't let the joke breathe. They just drop a subtle punchline there and uh, and I'd, I'd, it grates on me, so I'd, I'd deliberately go the other way to pause. And you get laughter out the out the silence sometimes as well. Backstage on the Fringe, the podcast that goes behind the scenes at the Edinburgh Festival. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave a review on whichever platform you access your podcast from. You can contact me on Twitter via the handle at Backstage Fringe or by email backstageonthefringe at gmail.com. But for now, back to the podcast. The show's on at noon, uh, and although not every day is a, a wet Sunday, um, today was. Uh, you had good numbers in. How hard are you having to work to attract an audience? Um, we've been really, really fortunate, actually. We're doing about an hour of flyer in most days, um, and we've got, we're, we're in the brochure and stuff like that. We had a bit of media attention in the run-up to the fringe. So I think people are kind of seeking us out because of that. I think um, people are saying, oh, this is different. This is, you know, something that I'm going to buy into, and people are coming because of that. So um, we've, we've been really fortunate in, in that way that we have had really good numbers um, most days. I think the lowest we've had, we had seven on the first day. We had one day with nine, and the rest of it we've had, you know, sort of 20, 30 people. So, um, yeah, it's been... It's been great, to be honest. Right? Really good numbers. Uh, it was refreshing to see a comedy show that steered away from topics like Brexit because every show and every second show has got something about that in it. Um, do you tend to find that working-class comedians tend to be more left-wing, given that there's the fairly clear rise of the right in British politics at the moment? Um I think most comedians are quite naturally left-wing anyway. I think that's um, sort of where the humour is, really mock mocking the right. I think that, you know, it's always been that way since sort of Ben Elton kind of era, you know what I mean? Um, but I think um, at the moment, the political climate is... Um, it's a minefield, do you know what I mean? And I think I feel like there's that many there's that many people doing jokes about Trump and Theresa May and stuff like that. Unless you've got something amazing... 
just leave it alone because you're just you're not gonna you're not gonna win. Do you know what I mean? It's just oh, it's another joke about Trump, another joke about this. And I think um, it, it's it's difficult to to do politically charged stuff in this climate. And I think um, you know, but what. I saw Louisa Omel on the other day and she does a show called Politics for Bitches and what she's actually saying is that actually even without talking about things that you think are politics, it's all politics anyway. So the fact that we're working class, the fact that we can't afford to be at the fringe, that's a political issue and I think um, you can be have you can have a political message without necessarily being you know very left wing or very right wing and talking about politics in in the main sort of scheme of it. Is there anything that the fringe itself can do uh, to make things easier for more diversity and more um, working class comedians to come through? I'm not sure. I, I don't know that the, the mechanics of it. I mean, the, the, it's obviously it's it's like they they can charge what they want because people will pay it. So I don't know if they have. Is it a social responsibility to do it? But then again, it's you know it's a hobby. Where's the opportunity for us to do that? Um, I don't know what they can, what they can do. I don't wouldn't know the business side of it. But showcases like this, if this can grow, and we have other spy costs from this, trying to do imitations, and we build it, and we build it that way. So we don't want it to be like we we want to, we don't want to like you know be completely split. You know it's. I think working class is like is being a bit of a buzzword now. I'm looking for work class. It's not a genre, you know. It's just where we come from. We've all got different stories, though. Mine and Sean sets are completely different, different stories, different ways we do our set. But we just happen to be working class. I think we get tired with you know like we're gonna sing consider yourself our mate like with all dickens killed children having a go at the stage. And it's not like that. It's just we happen to be working class, but. We can't really afford to come up and do the biggest arts festival. And being working class, um, there's a rich seam of material because there's a whole range of experiences that working class people have that middle class people either don't have or only are partially aware of. Uh, up here, guys like Billy Connolly right through the 70s and 80s, Kevin Bridges, uh, they're massively successful. Who are your working class comedy heroes? Um, I absolutely loved um, Carolina Hearn and one of the reasons I actually started to do comedy was when she died because um, she's someone that I, I looked up to and like her body of work is just fantastic and she was you know sort of died very like young um, from you know from being working class as, as we all will um, but like you know I've, I've always wanted to do comedy and when she died and Victoria Wood died within like sort of a month of each other it made me actually have the realisation that if I'm going to do it, I need to just crack on and do it because these people have died and they've left behind such a, a rich body of work and I haven't done anything yet, so I need to actually pull my finger out and do it. And it was about two months later that I did my first open mic gig and started doing comedy, so, yeah. Jamie, how about you? Um, Mike, well, you mentioned him there, Kevin Bridges. Um, I, I was always a massive fan of his work just because of how young he was and how successful he was and he was like oh my god he's my you know he's only a couple of years older than me and he's he's living my dream you know and um his book gave me goosebumps because he mentions obviously his influence frank skinner's book in, in his book he says i got frank skinner's book and it inspired me and then it was like it's the same to me it feels like a an olympic torch so god knows the poor sod who's influenced by my book <laughs> <laughs> Are, are, are there any things that you don't feel able to make jokes about? Um, 
I think for me, if, if there's humour there, there's humour there. But um, I worry about offending people. Like I never, as a comic, I never set out to offend anybody. And um, yeah, I, w- I would never want to. I think um, punching up is okay, but punching down is, you know, an issue. And it's still something, you know, I, I've seen comedians I, at this festival where I've thought, oh, uh, I'm offended by that. And I think, like, be, you've got a, there's a fine line between finding the humour in, in a potentially risky subject and um, just, you know, saying stuff that is going to offend people. And I think, to me, I... I I'm a comedian and the humour is the first thing, not not the message, not the what I'm trying to say, but the humour. And I think that um, I would never want someone to be offended by what I said. So, yeah, it's just about finding finding the right the right place to do it, you know? Yeah, there's, there's certain subjects that, you know, I, I think there's a lot of... I, th- I found this with a lot of particularly male open, like open spots, new acts on the circuit. They're trying to be the Frankie Boyle reincarnate of what they've seen him do a joke on Mot the Week and it's not got the charisma it's just aggressive so there is you know subjects that can be joked about but it's got to be done in a way that's just not attacking like victims or whatever the issue whatever the subject is should I say it's not having to go at the, the individual victims or you know attacking them I think people they, they want to be considered edgy and then they just go off and, and they just wave the or free speech banner and, and everything but you've got to have the you've got to have the right joke you know it's a I think every for a skilled enough comedian would probably be able to joke about most subjects um, but it's it's when it's left in the hands of people who are just going in and be trying to be aggressive and you know I want a name I want to be the bad boy of comedy and it's like well we don't need one <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's something about um, uh, cities um, in particular cities that have had heavy industry that have produced huge names in comedy you think about Glasgow Manchester Liverpool yeah London just by sheer force of numbers Edinburgh doesn't necessarily have a particular standout stand-up who's ever been produced why do you think working-class communities produce comedians that resonate nationally i think um when you grow up working class you've got no choice but to have a bit of humor about yourself i think um you know there's a lot of i'm not saying that other people don't go through um tragedy and difficult times but when you're working class it seems to be every other week something you know something mega's happening in your life and i think you deal with that as a working class community and a working class family through humor you joke you laugh it might be inappropriate it might not be the right thing but that's what you do and it makes you resilient in a way um and it also makes you work really really hard and I think that as a working class person if you want something and you've got that drive and you can break through the sort of the 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 glass ceiling if you like the, there's no stopping you and I think that, that that's what's happened with with a lot of working class comedians they've sort of you know taken it on and and ran with it because they've got they've had that work ethic instilled in them and they've found something they're good at and yeah I think as well you know, when you're at the fringe, it's hard to see, but like, because the, the audiences here are predominantly middle class. But when you look at the people that are sat at home watching the TV and the people in in the rest of society, they're not all middle class. You know what I mean? There's working class people, and we they want to see people that they relate to that have got stories like them that are the people they met down the pub or are like their brother or their uncle or their auntie or whatever. And I think that that is what. Um, 
builds people into, you know, in, people like Sarah Millican, Peter Kay, people like that who, you know, have sort of risen up and then gone on to huge, huge um, success because people will sort of champion them and get behind them. I find it interesting that when you have someone from who's someone who's middle class and amongst a group of working class people, suddenly they'll they'll start dropping their T's and H's and, and, it, and it, they, they'll alter some of their behaviour. But there's a level of discomfort, it's a very minor level of discomfort. But you drop somebody from the working class background in the middle of you know, a middle class or, or upper class. And I went to university in this city and felt like an outsider in my own hometown because everyone else was from the home counties. Is there a kind of a challenge to working class comedians who then become successful to then resist joining that group? Just, you know, it's really easy over the course of five or six years' success. You go from where your roots were to something that you're kind of not. And how would you deal with that? Yeah, I'm I'm getting rid of all my family if I get successful. <laughs> I'm getting the mansion, everything, <laughs> screw best in class and everything. No, uh, it's I think everyone, you know, it, you can't resent people for being middle class. They've, you know, they've they've just been born into a, you know a family. It's, you can't resent the individual. You know, it's it's that's the way it is. I've got friends who are middle class. Doing stand up, you meet every walk of life, every demographic imaginable. Demographics didn't even know existed before I started comedy. I've got friends now. Um, so you, you've got to be true to yourself and everything. But it's, yeah, it's. I think there's, with some like working class people, they, they might resent like the individual if they meet someone who's, who's posh and not having a pint with him. Well, you know, you don't know their story as well. So it's it's not about, it's not about the individual's it's about the, like the the whole grand scheme of things, the whole idea of class, I suppose. That's more annoying than actual individuals are in them circles, if you like. Sean, just one more question before we finish up. Um, you've pulled all this together. This has been organised. It's taken a lot of work. Getting anything to Edinburgh takes a lot of work. If you had to choose between a really positive review from one of the big publications or strong word of mouth for the show during the month of August, which would you pick? Uh, probably word of mouth, to be honest. I think, um, you know, it's like any good thing. It's a grassroots movement. What we're doing here is starting from the bottom. Like, um, I would have loved it if we didn't have to make this show, if opportunities has existed for this show somewhere else. I would have loved it if one of the big four had got in touch with us in early days and said, what you're doing is brilliant. We'll host you. We'll do it here. I would have loved it if this opportunity existed before I came along, but it didn't. We've started it from the bottom and that's, that's what real change is and that's how things happen. Um, so for us, word of mouth is the most important thing. If people tell someone about it, talk about it, let people know, that to us is, is what we're all about, you know. It's not a political show with a capital P, it's a small P uh, and I think that the more awareness we have around about the politics of being working class and, you know, the ability to move within classes um, and classes operating with each other, the better. Guys, where and when can we see your show? Uh, we're at midday, every day, at Harry's Southside. Thank you for talking to Backstage on the Fringe and best of luck with the run. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers, you. Thanks for listening to the Backstage on the Fringe podcast. A new episode will be released shortly, so make sure to subscribe and you won't miss it. Uh-huh.